Hello there. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to listen to Up in Flames. I'm your host, but more importantly, your advocate, Abby Bolt. I created Up in Flames as an effort to stoke a few fires and ignite moral courage in the workplace. The majority of my experience is as a federal employee, so that's my base. However, this mission will stretch out far beyond the federal workforce and discuss challenges and solutions for local government, private sector, and beyond. Up in Flames is made possible by you, my patrons. If you aren't a patron yet, please take a moment and visit patreon.com slash upinflamespodcast. There you'll have access to behind-the-scenes footage, interesting background details not shared on here, and early access to episodes created solely for the patrons who support this effort. For less than a cup of coffee, you can be a member and support the Up in Flames tribe. My hope is to continue this mission with the support of people out there in the thick of it, those who are looking back at their time in the workplace or new folks just coming up as contributing members of a professional community, all hoping to make it a better place. Now, please don't forget to hit subscribe. I don't want you to miss out on the other episodes. Leave a review and be sure to share this podcast with anyone you feel could benefit from it. If you have feedback or info to share, please email me at abbyitupinflames.org anytime. I would love to hear from you. Now, enjoy the episode. This is Jesse. Hey, Jesse. It's Abby. Hey, Abby. How's it going? Good. It sounds like you are now living what I've been living and it never ends, even when you think you've finished it. Like that's I was telling you, that's I, I don't I don't sugarcoat it. I let people know like it's not easy sticking up for yourself or putting your foot down. That's right. I don't make it easy, and I didn't realize actually I was a little bit naive on that. Even though I had some warning, I, I was in the same boat. People had told me, you know, if you ever do file a complaint or if you ever speak up, it's gonna wreck your career. It's gonna make things impossible. But I just there came a point where I knew that I needed to do something about it, no matter what. In my case, I've been a temporary. For 16 season. I want to capture this with you. And then, because I think it's really important that people hear from people like you, because it's not just about gals. It's clearly about, about a lot of men out there. And it was actually a former smoke jumper who worked for me in prevention and the way he was being treated and needing to stick up for him. That's how I really started ticking management off early on. And when I needed to stand up for him is when they started to get more and more mad at me. And then I realized how serious it was. And it wasn't just about me and being a gal on fire. It was about a hostile work environment against anybody that they decided they were against. I want to make sure that, you know, we capture some of this because I think the more that people hear about it, the better it is. Did you say you're cool with using your name or do you want to leave your name out of it? You know, I personally have nothing to lose. Uh, That's why I don't, I don't mind. It's been very difficult to continue with my career because I've never, I always feel like I'm, anytime I say something to somebody, to anybody, I feel like I just screwed my case, but that's not what it is. Because that's what they want you to feel. Yeah. And I've come to that conclusion. It's hard to explain to people that I'm 40 years old, that I have a BS in forest management from University of Minnesota, that I've been a smoke jumper for 11 years, a hotshot for five, and a temporary the whole time. And then I was teaching, I was teaching S390. Once you kind of get into these positions, it's hard to explain to people why you are completely cut off now, disinvolved. 16 seasons in with a college degree before. Right. And it's hard to explain that. And, and no, nobody, nobody is even coming close 
to wanting to associate with me, speak to me. You feel like you've been completely um, ostracized, probably. I have been. I totally hear what you're saying. Like, it's impossible. Well, one, it's it's hard enough to explain to the outside outside, but even people in your own agency don't even understand what it means to be seasonal for all those years, you know, or, or why you were or how that that works or where your protections could be different. You know, a lot of people don't, oh, yeah. in the agency don't get that. In, uh, let's see, the winter of 2015, 16, I was a part of the Exploring Leadership Program for Region 1. I was the only temp that's ever done it. They normally don't have fire folks either. I just happened to be at the university taking an S class when these other Forest Service folks were there. And so I had inquired about it. And they told me what it was, and they said, here, apply next year, and I did. And the inner working of, of management, you know, it's the first step in a three-part leadership series. You've got exploring, you've got middle, and you've got the senior. And the first one's free to all unit, each unit out of their budget. Yeah, so they were willing to invest in you. Somebody was. It was free. I didn't ask permission. I did from a different supervisor after it was already all set up. I've already been accepted into it. And then I asked my base manager at that time if I could, and he said, yes. The subject matter that we decided, our group of 10 decided to go with was culture, Forest Service culture. What are the issues surrounding it? Uh, what are the barriers, success? And over the winter time, all of us broke down what is wrong or what barriers are there for the Forest Service and the culture. And we were looking at external and internal. So our relationship with partners, with public, what are the barriers there? How do they perceive our culture? And then internal, what are the barriers internally? Presented a uh, regional leadership conference in the spring. Uh, and nobody in, I think they've been doing this program 15 years in Region 1, and it's spread to the other regions now. Um, nobody really tackles the culture, the issue of culture. And it is not easy, and it is hard to deal with. Nail on the head right there. It, it, they don't deal with it because it's not, it's very difficult and complicated. So when it comes to my case personally, after going through that, already dealing with harassment and reprisal, retaliation from a fire where I was a whistleblower in 2015, I didn't understand that that's what that was. I was just standing up for what is right and what is not right. So um, let's let's you are. let's roll back. Let's roll back to that point because you didn't even know at that time that that was an issue. So, but let's roll back to 2015 and the fire where now you realize that you were a whistleblower. Tell me about that fire and and what you spoke up about. So let's say it would have been oh July, I believe later mid July. It was the Bear Lake fire. The fire was already established. It's just it had grown. So they needed a reinforcement load to go support, uh, protect a particular property, the Buffalo Ranch. It's the most northern Buffalo Ranch in North America. It was an airstrip in about a section of land. We had, oh, six lower 48ers and then one AK jumper. And uh, the AK jumper was a friend of mine. I thought he was a friend. But in Alaska... It doesn't matter how much experience you've had. The AK jumper always takes lead for the assignment, uh, either jumper in charge or IC. You guys were in Alaska for this fire? We were in Alaska, yeah. This okay. was in Alaska. Gotcha. So we jumped the fire about 7 at night. Feels like the afternoon, you know. And after about two hours, I'll just make this part brief, about not even two hours into it, it was probably the most serious entrapment situation that I had been in. Uh, if it wasn't just jumpers out there, it would have been written about. And if we weren't all 
we were smarter, we would have pulled out our shelters and deployed. So it starts with that. Uh-huh. And then over the course of the next 48 hours, the AK jumper is behaving badly. I know him. And when you say behaving badly, like, what do you mean by that? Oh, uh, badly, just drinking, overly drinking. Now, at the fire uh, or when you guys came off? So the reason why I think a lot of jumpers never talk to me anymore and why I don't think I'll ever get back into jumping is because I was very frank and open about the amount of alcohol that is involved with jumpers. It's been traditional. Somebody on, on the load will have a flask or something like that. And it's been traditional since the beginning, but it has grown into something different. On, on a plane with, let's say, 10 jumpers, there's probably six that'll have at least a flask, if not, um, not a quart or a fifth. Right. And, and that's cultural. I mean, that's been around for a while. And even the AK jumpers uh, were reprimanded for that, you know, years ago. And it's still just it's pervasive. It's just what it is. So with this particular incident, this jumper, there were a lot of there was a backstory to it where they had jumped a fire there and worked a fire there five years ago. And that property owner was still trying to get land use agreement contracts fulfilled from five years prior. So we didn't know that. The lower 48ers, as we jumped out, we don't understand that. So later, within the 48 hours, the landowner comes over to say thank you, because we did. We saved his cabin that was sitting there on the airstrip and then at uh, the actual house and barn uh, livestock. I mean, it was it was very, very good planning, high risk. Uh, he comes over to say thank you. Uh, the oldest jumper on the load from Boise, he and I, we walked down to the pond just to go walk down, check it out. And as we come back up to the fire, it's a totally different scene. The landowner and the jumper in charge, the Alaska jumper, is standing there face to face. And the Alaska jumper is threatening him physically. And that's all we saw when we walked up. And that doesn't make any sense. So the other jumpers, whatever happened, the other jumpers that were standing there were speechless, staring, and they weren't even trying to engage. So this now this property owner and this landowner feels like he's being encircled, and I could see him do a quick look around. He's a big guy. Uh, and so I step in, and then the oldest jumper from Boise, he also steps in. I start talking with the landowner. The other jumper starts talking to uh, the AK jumper, calm him down, and I accompany the landowner back to his property, which was about a mile. TV ride and it, it just it didn't make any sense so I come back and now everything's pretty chill around the campfire and here's here's this AK jumper and we were you know first name basis we'd already been on a lot of fires together and sat down with him at the fire and, and I said remember remember when your grandmother brought us that birthday cake at that jump spot in San Bernardino and it was your birthday and you happened to just end up back at home Remember when your grandmother showed up? She was wearing that tie-dye. Yeah, that was fun. That was good cake, huh? What do you think about doing this a little differently? What did I miss? Yeah. And he immediately didn't take it well. He's uh, an alcoholic who has emotional problems anyway, which is why he was on short supply there in AK. He almost got fired a time or two for various reasons. So this was Um, his MO and everybody kind of accepted it? Basically. And that would be one of the few jumpers that would actually interact with him. And that's how he and I became 
friends. Um, yeah. He he flipped it, and then he basically was like, "You're a problem. You're the problem here." I was like, "Whoa, no, 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 no. You just all right. No, we'll deal with it tomorrow." And then the next day, and then the next day, and now we have uh, North Stars, the crew from AK. They're there, and he's in charge of all of us, uh, the load, and then the crew. And he was personality would shift. I could tell that he'd been drinking already. It was easy to figure out. What point of the day in shift is this where you, you realize that he's already been drinking? It's in the morning. Yeah. It's in the morning. And then and then when I sat and talked with the, the landowner, touched base with him again, there was a whole story I didn't even know, but I could understand there was something. So what was going on here? You know, and try and smooth it out. Try and continue to smooth it out. And that's when the landowner told me that he's been watching this particular jumper go into his barn every day, every morning and drinking the liquor. Wow. Cause the AK landowner would have liquor. That's where he kept it. It was in the barn. He was watching this jumper do his thing. And, and, yeah. and he, he hadn't said anything about it until you went and tried to just at least smooth some things over. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, you're kidding me. Oh, okay. So then I tried to talk with the jumper again about that. I was like, Hey, you know, God, you asked us to be especially professional now that the North Stars are here. So what what's going on here? And then that didn't work. And it was just even further, I'm the problem. I'm bringing up a problem. Jesse needs to be demobbed off this fire. Just and so he tried to do that. And... He tried to have me demobbed. And somewhere along the way, that was kind of, that was kiboshed for one reason or another. Instead, he was shifted over to a different part of the fire to do a strike team. Was that just happenstance or did someone make that happen on purpose? So it made it happen on purpose. Didn't beam of me. They transferred him off of that property over to a different property to be a strike team leader. And then I was assigned to go contain probably about an acre size spot by myself. So they put me in, disengaged me from everything. And they wouldn't let the other jumpers well, I say they, it was the oldest jumper from Boise that then took over. Uh, so I made to go basically cut a saw line around this acre and a half spot fire that had no operational. It, it, it was fine. It could burn. It could not burn. There was no reason to go spend that time, but he had me go do that, which separated me from everybody. One of the rookies from Boise tried to help me, but he would get reassigned every time. Um, so you were getting exposed with busy work apart from everybody else. Yeah. And then I could never, I wasn't able to use the sat phone. And then I realized that even when I just wanted to call my kinds in, which I was supposed to do, they were intentionally preventing me from using a sat phone. Isolation, and then, exclusion, just sabotage. Right. And when I finally did make uh, a sat phone call, I called my timekeeper and she's my rookie cousin. She rookied in 08, uh, but now she's the timekeeper. And so I talked to her about it. I told her everything that was going on, and she said, you know, you can get back to tell our base manager, and I'll back you up. You're talking to me. Yeah. So we went through the rest of the assignment. It was a full 14 days. There were other things that happened there towards the end, but right when we got back to the base, standing there, the base manager for AK is on leave. He's on forced leave for some reason. He and I get along very well. He's a good jumper. He's a good guy. The assistant base manager was there. And um, we're we're sitting there casually at the ops table counter, and you know he positioned himself next to me and like, hey, do you mind if we uh, mind if we have a, a talk sometime? 
It's like, no, let's have one now. So we go back into his office. He closes the door and he's like, God damn it, Jesse. Why are you being a fucking problem? I was like, whoa, no, sit down. Wow. And I made him sit down and I made him read time, date, event, time, date, event in my uh, notebook, Handy Dandy. And then after doing that, he's like, okay, all right, maybe you're not getting a fair shake on this one. And then he explains, and that's when I found out that whole time they were trying to have me demoed off the assignment. Behind your back, they demoed, were trying to rip you down. Home. Right. So who knows what kind of yeah. phone calls and stuff were happening. And... Right. Exactly. And Is it complete, you wanted... which I didn't even understand before, all this is a complete adult mobbing situation. And all the way from Alaska to Missoula. Mm-hmm. Did you say mobbing? Yep. Mobbing. Yeah. Mobbing. Yeah, it's a, and I didn't that's understand it either, but it's all of them basically mobbing together. You know, even over Jock the phone. locker room politics. Yeah. Jock totally. locker room politics. But I, I showed him all my notes and everything. And he asked if I would leave the notes. And I said, no. If, if the AK base manager had asked me to leave the notes, I probably would have because I trust him. But he wanted me to leave the notes. I said, no. If you want me to write, write them up, I'll type them up and send them back. Then there was nothing. I mean, we demoed the next day. We timed out. The guys from the lower 48, particularly the McCall and Redmond jumpers, were actually pretty pissed off at me coming the next day. They're just like, just take a day off, go home, forget all about this. I was like, are you guys kidding me? That's how they get by with it all the time. Yeah. The nature of them directing that, replacing the blame. Like, I tried to do what all pros want, is when you see something wrong, you go and you talk to that person and you try and work through how to make it better instead of seeing something wrong and going telling somebody else. You go direct to the source. That's what we try to do in the beginning. Yep. Direct to the source. And that didn't work. And then to have the purposeful reassignment of me out in the middle of nowhere, cutting around and, and mopping up an acre spot, acre and a half, in the middle of the tundra, while they have other conversations going on and different ways to paint this. And so I, I got a hold of the landowner because the landowner said, hey, if you get any shit for this, give me a call. And so I called him, and so he was friends with, I think it was like third in charge of AFS, Alaska Fire. Uh, they were friends, so he called that guy up, and he put his side forward. This is all happening. I'm in route back. I get back. I try and talk with about it. He doesn't want to deal with it at all. I got no support, even even after the timekeeper spoke up for me. And the landowner. Um, and the landowner. Landowner, timekeeper. I got no support from the base. The jump base, uh, the AK manager came back to work. And as soon as he came back, he asked, he called me up. I was sitting there rigging a parachute. And it was about two weeks later, three weeks later. And sometimes that feels like, you know, oh, yeah, especially in these situations. Yeah. And I'm sitting there rigging a shoot and he calls and I answer it. And he asked me, and I get off the phone. And here's the base manager who was in the loft anyway. I was like, oh, hey, he asked me to write a letter about it. I'm going to go do that right now. And that didn't sit very well probably could have said that differently, but I did write out, and that's part of the records now, the Bear Lake Fire document. I tried to generate support from the base by asking the base manager to read it and edit it, the training foreman to read it, edit, and then my supervisor to read and edit. And I don't really think any of them, they didn't really edit anything. They didn't they just want to read it. touch it, yeah. They didn't, want to, yeah. they didn't want their fingerprints on it, but you were, you were trying to give them some input and some ownership in it. You weren't just sitting there trying to rip everything down. Right. Yeah. I totally see that. And I sent it up there. 
I don't know what happened. I know that he still maintained his job. He was still out on assignment. The landowner was awarded the land use agreement contract for that buyer and the one pending from five years prior. Oh, wow. And those were land use agreement, the entire airstrip, cabin, sex, you know, it was an enormous chunk of money. Yeah, and they had ignored him for five years and suddenly, poof, they're going to they're gonna honor that. They award them both. And then um, I'm left there alone. And so that was 15. Uh, hiring season came around once again. You're seasonal. Um, not a permanent. I'm not a permanent. By this time, I'm... And for those that don't understand that piece is the majority of the smoke jumpers that we know, they're those kind of mid, lower level GS grades and they're not permanent positions. They're the majority of the jump list at any jump base is actually their seasonal employees. So oftentimes people either have to leave the jump program to go get a permanent or get lucky enough to get an appointment there. So you're a temporary, you're a seasonal wildland firefighter because that's where the smoke jumper jobs are. Right. And this is, this is turned into advocation for that, how high of a risk. So I'll get to that in a minute. Hiring season came around. I was once again not awarded a permanent appointment. They gave, I think, four of them away that season. There's only one veteran, but they all rookied after me. Less qualifications, less experience, not even with a bachelor's degree in force management. Maybe, and so maybe I. You're asked, on politics, not on paper. Yes. And so I, I had asked, went into uh, the base manager's office, and I asked, okay, how come I didn't get it this time? And he said, uh, you, you just don't do per diem timely enough. I was like, <laughs> don't get your travel done soon enough. <laughs> right. I was like, come on. You know how it works. I have to maximize all my assignments. You're telling me after all this time, I didn't get it because I couldn't do my per diem timely enough. And he's like, all right, no, you're in. You just need to be a team player. You're not a team player. Show us you're a team player. And I asked, Mike, do you realize what that sounds like? That after everything that I just did this last season, I didn't get hired. And you're telling me because I'm not a team player. You know what that looks like? Just show us you're a team player. Okay. Now, I I know from my past in fire. He's not a bad dude. You know, I mean, no matter who he's knocked heads with, whatever. And that's what that's what kills me is that people that end up in these these messes as they are good supervisors, they want to be good leaders. But there's so much political and social pressure going on in this web of like in this jump program. It's so social political that no matter how great of a guy is he's making these decisions and suggesting these things based on that social influence and it can just rip an entire environment apart. Yes, that is, that is extremely accurate. Hate and not the player. That's how I've always tried to be. I've also had a very wide open, you know, he'll get hot, he'll get mad, but it'll pass and we'll move forward and we can talk. Then his frustration. And that's healthy. And we can move There's on. There's nothing wrong with that. That's healthy. We need to be right. able to do that. And like you said, move yeah. on. And I explained that during investigation for the first EEO, and I can get along that way. Other folks, not not as easily. So on the hiring side, of the six seasons that I was there in Missoula, they had hired 22 permanent GS6s, 22. All of them but one rookied after me, and all of them but one either rookie through Region 1 at that base, or they were from Montana. The one that rookied before me that got that GS6 level, he's now an eight. Uh, he took a downgrade from McCall to move back home. So there's that documented. And then 2016 comes around, and I honestly playing the game. I'm trying 
to be a good team player and support it all the way through. You're jumping through every it. hoop you can. Every hoop, even more than I normally would. Going out of my way, but I've never, I've, I've never played the game. In my opinion, it, I thought it was simple. It was easy jumping. You work as hard as you can, and you look out for everybody. Safety, the well-being, the team, you look out for everybody, and that should be enough. I've always believed that, and that's why I was being so patient uh, with not getting a permanent. And now you have the Workforce Flexibility Act that has made it so I can apply for a GS-7-8 position, which I qualify for. Right, so that was your chance at benefits and and retirement and all of your time recognized. And then I could be a spotter. That's really all I really ever wanted. I thought spotting would be the perfect career job. It was August of 2016. Jumped a fire outside of Miles City. And by this time, now I have transitioned to a Ram Air parachute system. And during that same transition training period, I was also getting my EMT, Wilderness EMT training. To do both of those at the same time is an extremely difficult task. In fact, nobody has done that before. And nobody has done it since. There's just so much, so much engagement. And I did both of them successfully. And now here it is, 2016. We're jumping a fire outside Miles City. This is what, my first season on uh, a Ram Air. Now leading up to this jump, I had I had requested to have more jumps because I noticed that I was being held all the way out to the 30-day mark. Even if I'm at the base for 30 full days, they would still, up until the very last minute, and even one month, I passed the 30-day period, and it was on day 31. So if there was an assignment, when I was on first load, and if there was an assignment, first thing in the morning, I couldn't have taken it because I wasn't proficient. Proficiency. All right. They had held me back on purpose that many times over and over and over. And I just transitioned over. Those are the ones that need to have it more often. So here we are on a fire. We're jumping. I'm first guy out the door. And there's three of us. The jump spot is a six-acre meadow. And then downwind of it, there's a tall tree line, but then another six-acre meadow. Six-acre meadow downwind was my safety, my alternate jump spot. And it was close to the fire. We were let out entirely too early. Being first guy out of three, I generate my separation. And then there's no way I could have made the jump spot. So all I did was back up and landed in the safety zone, in the alternate. It was a no-brainer. The other two set up, made it into the jump spot, no problem. I packed my gear up. I made it over there. Before they had kicked cargo, we shed cargo. We engaged on fire. There's no issue. We go back to base. We talk about our jump. I explain exactly why. Everybody agrees. Nobody said anything. You were going by your training too, by the way, right? I mean, you're trained to have these alternatives in place. Do this, do that. If this happens, you do X, Y, Z. So it's not like you're doing something outside the box. Correct. That's absolutely correct. And that's why jumpers do that for that decision-making in the air. And it was for a good purpose. I had done it on the fire prior as well. Was first guy out the door. Winds were terrible. I just took an alternate so the other two could make it. And they did just what happened. I explain it. We're done talking about it. The training foreman says, Jesse, I want to to talk to you for a minute. And we go to this very small secluded space. We didn't go to his office. We didn't do it in front of others. He took me to a very small closed broom closet is what it felt like almost. And he's much taller than I am. I know. He's six plus. Yeah. And I'm five six. So he's standing over me. And he said, I know why you took that alternate. I said, Mitch, I don't understand. I explained it. He's like, I know why you did it. You were showboating. 
You were showing off to other people on the fire what jumping was about. You were showing off. I was like, are we talking about the same fire? No answer. I was like, why do you think that? He's like, because that's why you did it. Literally standing over, trying to threaten. I've seen this happen with other jumpers who end up losing their cool and getting fired. That is a tactic. You push their buttons, get rid of them. And I already knew that was a thing. And I, I just kind of, I stepped back and I was like, you've had an issue with me for a little bit. And I'm trying to work through this with you and talk through this with you. And that's what I said to him. I'm gesturing my hand to my chest towards him back and forth, gesturing. You've had a problem with me. I'm trying to work through this with you. And he's like, you're putting your hand in my face. You're getting aggressive. I was like, I'm out. I left the, assi- I left the room. Uh, that morning I had said yes to an assignment in West Yellowstone. So about an hour after that meeting, we were on a plane to West Yellowstone where I spent three weeks. The loft foreman, we had issues in West Yellowstone that I called him out on. That one is just, I called him out and he apologized. So you, you knock heads but, with some people because you call it like it is, right? And it rubs some people the wrong way. They don't like that. I do rub them the wrong way, but it is only leaders. Oh, interesting. And kind of more of a leadership threat sort of thing. I've wanted to jump since I was a kid. That's why I got my BS in force management. I thought I had to. Growing up in the Midwest, I didn't know jumping was a thing. And so I thought I had to go to college for it. Once I got into the program, I just stuck with it. And then I became a temp hot shot. And then I've been in it. I mean, this has been my whole world. And I do have high expectations of especially leadership in a high-risk job. Absolutely. So I come back from West Yellowstone, and this is where everything started snowball. I come back. As soon as I get off the plane, I put my gear in my locker. They ask me to come into base manager's office. I'm like, oh, now what? So I go in, and then I'm issued a letter of direction. I've never seen one. I've never heard of one. A letter of direction is disciplinary in a sense. It'll sit in your personnel file for a year. If you don't violate the terms of that, then it will be expunged. But if you violate the letter of direction, the direction given in the letter, then you can be disciplined all the way up to termination. Yeah, it's basically a warning shot that they can snap you on later with much easier than had they not written one. I start to read it. It lists the fire where I took the alternate. It lists that it says the spotter asked me why. He wasn't the spotter. He was the assistant in a small plane, so he wasn't even in the back. But when he asked me why I took that alternate, it says in documentation, in writing, that Jesse Sankey replied, I did it because I wanted to show other people on the fire what something was about, and I got lost in the sunset. And so they paint me into an unsafe person. They lied 100% Black in documentation. with no guilt. Wow. And they're, they're hitting me with a letter of direction because I took an alternate on an operational jump. Well, what were they directing you to do in the letter, though? In the letter, and that's, this is where, that's an excellent question. If they're going to lie, then that means everything in that has to be taken literally. Right. Whatever they're trying to say now, the direction states that I will make the jump spot every time designated by the spotter, period. Every time designated by the spotter, period. And that does three things. If I believe it, if I really, really believe that, then I will risk life and limb, my own, just to make the jump spot. Two, if I really believed it and I'm really going to risk my life and limb, then I would put my own jump partners at risk. I would risk them simply because I was mandated and I have to make it. So there are all kinds of scenarios, all kinds of situations that would arise where I would put them at risk. For those that hear this and they don't really understand a couple of things, I want to talk about your letter of direction and how it was identifying this whole showboat thing in the alternate jump spot and how they even, the fact that they even use that in a letter of direction just boggles my mind because that's not really how they're intended. But 
an, an employee relations specialist wrote this for them. Like they didn't even write it. They just give them the information. They punch out these letters, right, wrong, or indifferent. They can be full of lies and they just go with it. And there's no, there's no retribution if they get caught lying. It's just, it's disgusting sometimes. Sometimes they're necessary. They're true. Fine. But they are not always. And so they did that. And then that they put you in a box for something that is life and health safety. The USDA Forest Service, one of the top risk situations is jumping out of a plane and safely landing on the ground. And you guys have different jump spots identified as primary alternate. Do you guys have, how many jump spots do you usually identify when going into a fire? Sometimes there's no alternate. There's only one spot. Because you don't have a choice though, right? Right. Or there's always the option of training up. Right. But, yeah, but then you would lose your job not, apparently. No, you wouldn't. No, you, no, you would die. after your, after yeah, your letter of direction. It, at any time. And, and the other part of that is uh, I'm extremely good canopy uh, manipulator. I got my senior rigger at the end of my second year. I'm extremely good with parachute manipulation. I make spots people don't. I've only treated up once in 199 jumps. Probably not a lot of jumpers that can say that. No, yeah. no, they're not. I only knew of one. So this letter of direction they gave you, identifying that you had to hit the spot identified by your spotter. So they're painting you into this box. So sorry I took away from that, but I just wanted to make clear to some folks what this letter of direction is, how employee relations works, how is there how there's some serious lack of integrity with it, and then really how much because especially because you're a seasonal, this letter of direction is really serious for you because if it sets you up on this very thin ice where if you cause any cracks, you're done. One of the things about the letter of direction part, as a temporary, I have no course of, of grievance at all. There is none. And they knew that. That's, That's how why they, they can tell the lies so easily. And to generate a letter of direction over an alternate on an operational jump, that, that right there, you're reprimanding somebody for a safe decision anyway. And then you lie about their intent. Just they lie in documentation. Just that malice. Intent is inexcusable in a high-risk job for managers, managers of people in high-risk jobs. And then that brings up the third point of what that letter of direction did. That letter of direction was generated by a spotter who lied, and he potentially could spot me in the door again. And it is set up now where if I don't make the jump spot, I get terminated. If he lied, why would he Why would he not misspot me right. to terminate? That is a jumper-spotter breach. An extremely coveted relationship. And if someone's not going to show integrity in the office, why are they going to show it in the plane? Right. Exactly. That was, that was, I have to grieve your attempt. You can't grieve. However, the deputy fire and aviation chief, I went and talked to him about it. He said, you could write up a pre-grievance letter. And, you know, he wanted me to go talk with him in a very open public spot. And I didn't want to do that. Who is that at the time? It's still... I thought he was a friend as well. He used to be a neighbor at one point. But he used my situation as a political pawn to generate, oh, power over the jump base managers, supervisors. At the time, the fire and aviation chief position had not been filled yet. Uh, It would later get filled. I wrote up a pre-grievance letter. I submitted it. And then I was notified that I'm a temp and I have no grievance rights. I asked for third-party mediation because obviously communication is the biggest issue here. We're just not, you guys, in my opinion, people weren't understanding. Nothing wrong with challenging your leadership for the health of others. No, and that's what we're taught to do. 
That's what we're taught to do, right? I would want anybody on my team to do that. The pre-grievance didn't work. I filed a harassment claim. That is the only option available for a temporary. Trying to deal with it all internal from very beginning. If we were to ever do something like that, that it is finally reaching out of your immediate unit into a different leadership section within the Forest Service. And we all have faith in good leadership judgment. So I had faith that once I reached out, then this would get corrected a little bit after I've already built a personal relationship with Leanne Martin and Jane Darnell. I mean, they know me. I thought once I did that, then other things would come into play and it would be corrected. But the first harassment claim I filed, I did it December when I was laid off. Then by May, now it's April, I go back to the jump base. And I thought things would just be smoothed out or something. I don't know what I'm expecting. You're expecting um, folks to do what made logical sense uh, to make it better. Yeah. Even if you just bring something up because it was not binding. There was no, I thought maybe somebody in a higher position would just tell that person that they need to just relax. Honestly, that's what I thought. Yeah. But it, it just seemed like nothing happened. It's like, wow, everybody's being really professional if that did happen. To Texas in April of 17, I uh, ended up with a wicked knee infection that put me in the hospital for three days, cut my assignment short. And I, then when I got back, then things were different. Then it seemed like there was discussion. There was something while I was gone. Now that I'm back to work, maybe. They waited until I got back to work to do the investigation part. And then the reprisal was classic and unbelievable. Uh, I could not believe in a professional government setting, the reprisal that was happening. And it was stressing me out big time. I ended up uh, on an assignment to go back to Minnesota. I did the same assignment the year prior. Now I'm headed there. And just before I left for the assignment, uh, the day prior, now I'm working with the union folks, Union 60. And I'm a temporary and so I don't, I'm not in the bargaining power group. I have no representation through the union either. They asked me to go back to D.C. during lobby week to lobby wow. for a particular bill. And Union 60 wanted me to go as a representative. Well, because you've been involved and you're well-spoken and you're educated and you're passionate. So you're really kind of one of the perfect people to go do that. And the uh, particular bill I really do believe in, even though it, I would not have any benefit from it. If you're a first responder or emergency personnel for the federal government, be it law enforcement or wildland fire, if you're injured in the line of duty and you cannot return to your high-risk job as a result of that injury, then you still maintain your 20-year retirement. As it sits now, that isn't the case. And that hasn't been the case. One of them, one of them was my old rookie trainer. He's not um, as articulate as they were as they wanted. So they had asked me if I wanted to go this year or that year, particular year. Working with them right before I went to Minnesota, HR filed a harassment claim, retaliation claim on my behalf. An HR representative filed that for you because they recognized it. Yes. And two days later, it's, I think, or the weekend later, it's Monday. Monday morning at 5.30, I'm in the Missoula TSA line. And Leanne Martin, our regional forester, steps up in line behind me because she was going somewhere. She's like, Jesse, favorite jumper, how's your season? I was like, what do you know about my two harassment claims? She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Let's step out of line and let's talk about it. I said, yes, please. So we step out of line and we go off to the side. And for about 40 minutes, I, I lay things out there for her. I didn't, didn't want to miss my flight. Uh, I, didn't, I also did not know that they closed the gate 10 minutes prior to departure. So I'm 
I'm sitting there with the Region 1 Forester. Yeah, you've got the Regional Forester there in the airport by accident, and you're trying to definitely want to take advantage of that chit-chat. And she had asked. Yeah. She asked me how things were going, and so I told her honestly. Long story short, but that's a very key part of this whole case, of this, that was hidden. Uh, I missed my flight because I was talking to the Region 1 Forester about my harassment claims. I missed my flight. I caught a flight later in the afternoon that put me in Duluth. I had to spend an evening in Duluth. By the time I got to Duluth, there was a manager that called as the fact-finding entity for my first harassment claim and now the retaliation claim. And she was functioning as the deputy regional forester at the time. And her and I spoke while I was sitting in a hotel room in Duluth in the morning, the next morning, for about two hours. But I was terminated because I missed my flight. What? That's why I was terminated. You're kidding me. That's why I was terminated. And they rolled that termination, my one of my harassment claims, reprisal claim. I had actually listed some jumpers, knowing that was a risk, but there was an incident that was very blatant, obvious, in front of everybody. So three of the jumpers that I listed, two of them were friends, good friends. And both of them said they were neither close enough to see or hear, which breaks my heart quite a bit because they were. Now they're promoted. And then the other one, I took a chance to list him, but he was a fellow EMT. We had been on a lot of fires together as a recent, and he was standing right there. And everything I reported, he reported the exact opposite. And Jesse was the aggressor. It comes down to these people who you think are your friends, who are your friends, and they get asked to speak up as a bystander, and their instinct goes, let's see, who's going to secure my future? Is Jesse going to help my future or is the smoke jumper program going to help me? And they turn on their friends. It's one of the saddest things I've watched and experienced firsthand. It's and it's painful. Now, I've witnessed it in the 11 seasons I was a jumper. I've watched jumpers throw other jumpers under the bus. I never thought it would happen with me. I don't know why. The lesson is learned. It's been there. It's been in everybody's face. But as you're a younger, just trying to get in, not understanding quite what you're seeing. And given the EEO process, silence is paramount. Right. And allowed. That's, I think, big problem and why nothing ever gets corrected is because nobody has to admit why. Somebody's just taking several days off in the middle of the fire season. You don't know why. They can claim whatever they want. And same goes for when I was terminated. Talking to the regional forester, about all these issues. And then once I'm removed, I've heard all kinds of reasons as to why. And they actually put that in your letter? Did they put that failure to follow direction or something? Like, how did they articulate that? They, uh, it states I missed my flight. So then they list the uh, provision within the employee handbook as to the violation. And did that regional forester ever speak up for you or did you talk to her again? No, therein lies kind of a wake-up call. Brother, I have got what's really a happening. story that is almost verbatim to yours. And then some, like with a regional forester. And yeah, it's shocking to see the level of positions and the lack of integrity. I don't know how a lot of them sleep at night. It's really disappointing. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to be a jumper bro and not take care of your buddy. And then to be in these high-level national positions and not even do the smallest of things or try to do the right thing outside the box to take care of a, an employee is just, it's why I resigned. And it's what I put in my resignation letter. 
the lack of integrity and moral courage that is held by these federal employment officials just is nothing short of disappointing. And you just gave a picked example. And it starts early. If you can demonstrate that you're willing to subjugate your own personal integrity to be a good soldier, so to say, and support a management decision that has been directed to them for some reason, then you'll get promoted. And so once you establish that, when I was a younger temporary, there's always that phrase, playing the game to get in. By the time I'm done with it, I now understand exactly what playing the game really does mean. And I never did. I never played that game. You never would. And you never will. Never will. You should be proud of that. Damn proud of that. Yeah, I still am. All the way not to the bank, right? We're damn yeah. proud of it. We might be unemployed because we're standing up for ourselves and what's right and not playing the game. But you know what? I don't care how much money you've got. I don't care what kind of great position you have, how you are of yourself and your career. I know I sleep better at night than those who, who do people wrong like this. That's a priceless thing. A piece of mine is priceless and you, you can't put a value on that. I uh, 100% agree. The other part is I don't know how anybody, what is our agency culture? What is that agency culture, that fire culture that promotes exactly what we're told never to be? That is who gets promoted all the time. They promote those people and then they spend tens of thousands of dollars on a leadership class that teaches all the people exactly the opposite of that kind of behavior. They teach us duty, respect and integrity and and all of these great leadership values. And then they promote the people that display something completely opposite. Exactly. I don't understand that part. And then when it trickles all the way into a high risk job, I know that whole mentality is a part of life out there. People have been telling me that over the last year or two. It's just the way it is everywhere and fine. But how is that true in such a high-risk job? What I've, what I've been saying for a while now, and I'd said it to my FMO's face, I said it to my regional forester, I said it to my forest supervisor, I said, you know, all these little things that are happening, this is exactly what fatality investigations are made of. Because someone dies and a huge internal or external investigation happens, and then they go back and they find all these little micro human behaviors or situations that occurred that contributed to major disasters because of all these human factors we're talking about right now and decision-making and attitudes and hazardous attitudes and, you know, all these little things. It's a huge Swiss cheese effect. Whenever I would say that, they just, they didn't want to be in the same room because they knew that it was partially true. They didn't want to touch it. Putting it in that regard, uh, Luke Sheehy. Mm -hmm. Luke and I were rookie trainers together in Reading. He was my roommate. He was my favorite person at Reading. And we would talk a lot about playing the game just to get in. And that was kind of an ongoing discussion we had. But uh, when, when Luke passed away, when Luke died, that was it for me. It was like no more. There's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't say something. Because I know exactly how it could end. I know how it'll go for some folks, for very few. But it'll still go that way. Maybe not today. Maybe not on this fire. But right. if you right. don't speak up now, it's just going to continue. There's just a realization that there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't speak up when something's not right, because that's what we're promoted to say. That's how we've been trained. If you see something that's not right, you speak up, you say it. And that's not true. As soon as you do that, things are... You're ostracized. You know, and listen, you know, if, if there's a tree falling, you see the tree coming and you say something and you get someone out of the way, that's perfectly fine. It's expected. You save someone's life. Now, in any other scenario that's not like life or death, it's like it's not okay. It's not allowed. Right. It's like the layers in the uh, Swiss cheese. You see the immediate block of it. You see the holes right there in your face. That could be your operational safety hazards. Uh, Your essay tells you this. 
but then the layers behind those have holes. And there are reasons why holes line up. Now, when you have a culture in place that generates cheese that has big holes, you're going to have more issues. And that would then trickle down into, look at a, a two-year period here recently where you had seven jumpers die, two in the line of duty and five by suicide. That's what I mean about that background hole is so big, things happen that aren't even on the fire, that have deep consequences. And that's the culture that needs to change. There are a lot of really great people out there. There, I've worked with, for, and beside some really great leaders. But there are some out there that should not be there, that are either being promoted or moved around for the wrong reasons. The conversation that you and I are having right now, this is a conversation that happens a lot across the country, in the bar, on a fire, you know, someplace where nobody else is hearing it. These conversations are happening all the time, but nobody hears about them. You know, they need to be heard about. They need to be talked about out loud. They need to be captured. But people are terrified to have them. We are willing to have this conversation. And you know what? We're going to have it. We're recording it. And we're going to publish it so that other people can hear this conversation that usually happens in the bar or on a fire behind closed doors. They're going to hear it out loud. It's going to piss some people off. And some people are going to be like, oh my God, yes, that is my exact life. This is happening across the board. And I guarantee you that these kind of behaviors have killed people. We're just not admitting it. We're not putting it out in a report. I guarantee you they have. It's the factors in the background. Yep. To sit at the jump base and have to deal with all of that pettiness, that jock locker room approach, and then for the horn to go off in the afternoon, and then I shoot up, and then to go engage. That's when everything's simple, when the horn goes off, but everything prior to that, all of that negativeness, negativity, that leads to poor decision-making later on down the road while you are engaged. So I have to deal with it in shop at the base and then stop. Yeah, you're just supposed to turn it off when you're in Right. That's not practical. Absolutely. That and there's there's the trust factor of those that are beside you. You can't trust them back at the base. Why are you going to be able to trust them on the side of a mountain? Before I do the one thing that has the most consequence for me that I will engage on on a fire, and then I have to question the tent of the person who has large control over my well-being. How does our agency culture, how does that mentality that we are discussing, how does that trickle all the way into one of the most high-risk positions that a wildland firefighter could have and the most responsibility that another one could have? How does that trickle into that even? And if it has trickled all the way into jumping, the spotter-jumper relationship, if it has gone so far as to sour that, that means that it's pervasive, it's everywhere. What is that? It has to be recognized and discussed. Yep. There, are, there are people that, that have been flocking to jumping. Very qualified, very skilled, very capable individuals that love jumping. Probably romanticized about it since they were kids. And we put them in those situations, in that environment, and they could have gone and done anything else with their lives. They could contribute any other way to a greater well-being. But they opted to go down that route. And that's the leadership that you give them. And as it stands at the moment, I was an example. If you speak up like Jesse did, you're going to end up like Sankey. Don't be like Sankey. So that trickles down. So 10 years from now, when somebody is a GF7 now, or, or a spotter 8 now, then becomes a foreman, they've been shown how that goes. They were shown that you can lie, you can oppress, you can threaten anybody, anytime, and you'll probably end up getting promoted. As long as you keep your mouth shut. Yeah, keep your mouth shut. And whenever asked, you were not close enough to see her here. 
Oh, my favorite one-liner from, uh, well, all the managers that I've lost respect for, HR, and especially ER, was, you've got to protect the agency. Above all, protect the agency. And that right there is where we lose a lot of people that could be good leaders. They make poor choices. They're dishonest. They throw their integrity out the window because they protect the agency instead of protecting that jumper. As long as you're willing to display that you'll subjugate your own personal integrity to be a good soldier, you'll get promoted. And that's how nothing changes. That's why nothing changes. I know it doesn't even matter, Jesse, if you have conflicts with people. People will listen to this people from the jump base and they'll be like, oh, that's crap. Jesse was on there and he said this and that. Did you hear he threw so-and-so under the bus and he keeps saying name this name or, you know, he's just a, and they can throw whatever names they want to out there, whatever it makes them feel to deflect it. It doesn't matter how many people you rub the wrong way or how many people you don't get along with because it's not that. It is not about Jesse and a personality conflict with someone else. Sure, there's the pieces of this and that happened and I wasn't there. And so I'm only hearing your side and and that's fine. But I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it. It's not like this is an original story. That's what I need people to understand. This is not original. This is happening repetitively across the nation in these high-risk situations, these high-risk jobs. And it's happening in the low-risk jobs too, this kind of behavior. So no matter what your personal situation is, your personality conflict with someone, like people need to not get wrapped up in that in this in this interview, in this story, and realize they need to pull that away and hear all of the base that you're talking about when we're talking about the leadership integrity and the high level that we should be holding our people to. Those are the pieces they need to hear because right, wrong, or indifferent in all of your background story, no matter what, those those statements are true. And everybody all the way up through the Washington office listening to this, they know that's true and they know that they need to do better. They need to do better. They need to grab a hold of people who cared enough to go get educated, who are passionate enough to give this the time, the thought, and the effort and find a way to help you flourish and utilize your knowledge and your motivation to make the agency better. But they take the easy out. They see you as causing a problem and they kick you out of your whole career as soon as they can find an easy way to do it. Because you know what? We can't figure out how to manage Jesse for all of his strengths. We can't figure that out. That's way above our head. And heck, we're probably intimidated by it. That's probably how they're feeling inside. They just won't admit it. You're, you're too difficult to actually be able to capture and take value in all of your everything you have to offer. So they kick you aside and they push the easy button and they take on and let the ones that are easy to manage. So what if we have to deal with an alcoholic here or there? He at least goes to the jump spot I want him to and doesn't say, tell me why he didn't. It's really, it's going to be the demise. I'm not just worried that it's going to be the demise of an agency. I'm worried about all the people it's going to kill in the future. Might seem drastic, but it's a fact. I do I do worry about that exactly that what's going to come later a whole host of factors that are in play at the moment that are making it more difficult to deal with fire lack of funding or denial of the increase of it coming shutting down some of the job core locations none of it makes sense now and this and like what we're talking about is very agency specific with usda and forest service and but these management and leadership behaviors it's not just the Forest Service and USDA. This is this kind of thing is happening in several agencies, several professions, private and federal, all over the place. So what we're talking about here, it doesn't just have value in our small culture, in our small agency. It has value across the board. And folks hopefully are open-minded enough to see that. 
people that have been reaching out to me have been from everywhere, every walk of life, every profession out there. And the stories are the same. You know, you're just in one that happens to be a lot higher risk and you have a much higher expectation of the behavior of your leaders. We see it a little bit more. It's a little more highlighted. And I think when I asked if you'd like to chat on the phone today, because I didn't know your story. I didn't know your background. And we just jumped on the phone to chat and look at how much value we have talked about. This, these conversations need to happen. We had to be out of the agency to confidently have it. And that is sad. And that needs to change. And then there's the EEO process. Still pending. I'm still waiting for a hearing in the San Francisco office. Every day I'm, I'm waiting. I wanted to ask you a couple of things surrounding that. Before I talk to you about the EEO thing and the whistleblower thing, a really difficult piece that I'm sure you're experiencing is being pushed away from, because it's not a job, right? Being a smoke jumper, it wasn't a job to you. It was probably a complete lifestyle as a way of life. I've dedicated everything to it. Never been married, never had kids. Uh, I don't own a home. I've literally feared all life choices so I could be a jumper. And, and I have for a very long time. So it's been the one stability in the family that comes with it. But I see where you're going with this. I'm blacklisted. There are very few jumpers out there right now that actually talk to me. In fact, there's less than half a dozen who've been friends, like good friends, RBs, one or two jumpers from around the country. But I've lost that, that family. That's hard. And the longer the EEO goes without a judgment, without administrative determination, the longer that the blackballing goes, the character defamation goes, they see me coming down the street, they'll actually look away. You know, little things like that. It wasn't that, until... Those are killers. They are. And they literally can be. Like it can wreck your mental health and your emotional health to some place that can be hard to pull back from. And I didn't, I didn't ever really wrap my mind around what a loss of identity, what that really meant to us until a couple Ooh. years ago, I was listening to one of the Wildfire Lessons Learned podcasts with Travis Dotson. And he talked about that. They were talking about, you know, whether it's an injury or you have to step away from the job for whatever reason, or you get fired, but I was talking about that loss of identity and how it can really have an effect on your life. And I was sobbing and in tears because I was in a place where everything was getting taken away from me. Everything I loved about my job was getting stripped away from me as a way to just torture me. And I realized why it was working so well, because it was my identity. It wasn't a job. It was who I was. The moral loss so to be able to lobby for firefighters who are disabled now through the line of duty. And I've known jumpers who are that way. And it's not just them. Sure, they they themselves go through that mental cycle, the emotional cycle through a change and now you're disabled. That invokes a lot. But then the stress on the family, the family's also affected. So the moral loss comes when you're dealing with all of this, you're seeing your coworkers having to go through that process, and that's through being disabled. But then you see your coworker who did nothing wrong, that was only looking out for the betterment, and then you see how they get treated. And there's the silent support that articulates that. That hurts, too, just as much, if not more. And now you're into this agency. Now you're working for them. Everything that you thought was good about it comes into question when you see a, another coworker go through that. And there's the silent group out there that do appreciate speaking up, respect you for it, but they can never really say anything right. uh, to you. There is that moral loss side of it. Yeah. 
and that was articulated to me by somebody else. Yeah. And then you start to wonder what it is you're doing and who you're working for, and that's where I think four service could start doing some correcting. Yeah, they have to do something and completely that, outside of the box and outside of what they've ever done they before. They do. Managers have to be held accountable, and they have to say why. Right. So the conclusion of my first EEO, ADR, I was allowed to resign. And then I believe one of the supervisors had to take a downgrade from a GS-11 to a GS-8. And he got to claim for whatever reason. He said that he wanted to work more on his family than yeah. being a supervisor in his last years. I knocked um, heads with a ranger about that one time because there was an issue with one of the supervisors in our office and I had brought up a lot of the issues and I just said, I need to know if this has been handled. I need to know because it's going to get somebody killed. And he said, well, I can't tell you that, you know, I can't, it's, it's confidentiality. And I said, I don't care. I need to know how am I ever supposed to feel settled if I don't even know if you handled it? And he goes, well, we, we handled it. And I go, I, I don't believe you. And he goes, well, would you want me to talk about your discipline to your employees? And I said, absolutely. If I screwed up and I got called out on it, Tell my people so that they see that and they're like, oh man, we better not do that. Or, hey, she was held accountable, you know, and I, I get that there is policy out there. And I think that policy is above the Forest Service. It's not that they can necessarily easily do something it, about it, but something has to change. Yeah. And, and yes, unfortunately, that, that policy is in place and that's going to take more than just leadership decisions to shift that. But we are in agreement on that. There needs to be accountability from leadership. Like you said, if you made a bad decision, then it's okay to share it. Hiding behind that, definitely, if a leader could act knowing that any poor choice or any poor management they had could be, over time, kept confidential, they would make decisions differently. Yeah. If everything's wide open, if you're ever disciplined, it's okay to share it. Right. I think it would streamline, at least moderate. Yeah, just flat out accountability. It would just fix a whole lot of that. You know, people would either see people got in trouble for doing something and they would not do it. When back in the day, they would put dunce caps on kids in classrooms, right? To call the kid out. And then nowadays they write their name on the board and you don't want your name on the board. All the other kids know that you screwed up. They don't want to screw up and get their name on the board like you. And we need to do something more in these federal agencies and in the Forest Service because there's too much of the confidentiality where it needs to be lifted and not enough where, you know, there's places that are supposed to protect people with confidentiality that are victims and that isn't being held up. And then the fact that you don't have to speak up, you don't get in trouble for not speaking up. Like we need to start nailing people for being there, being bystanders and either one, not saying anything or two, lying about it. People should be more afraid and about that than they are. That going through my EEO processes, listing people, and then to see how they respond. That was a wake up. Yeah. Well, now I had someone that came to me, told me all these things that were going on, wasn't afraid to come to me and tell me the facts, send me the emails, give me all of the evidence. And when it came down to listing that person as a witness, I started getting text messages, very upset and very emotional about how that employee didn't want to put their family at risk by speaking up. They didn't want to mm -hmm. be a witness and lose their job. And I sent that to the attorney, the attorney sent it, to the agency saying like, look, this is how bad this is. This is how scared people are that witnesses aren't willing to be witnesses. And that's wrong. You know, we can't trust people's integrity and we can't even get the agency to hold them accountable. But the thing that is, it's not so much those people, it's that this culture has put them in that position. You know, I've got a couple other people that I put down as witnesses and they went silent and or they didn't answer the inquiries. 
I forgave them for that because they were the sole providers for their family. And they were watching what was happening to me. Just like you said, you don't want to be like Sankey. They were watching what was happening to me. And if I didn't have my family to fall back on, I would have been toast. And they, they didn't have that room for risk in their life. So I get it. You mentioned that you're know, going back to the EEO and the actual legal piece of this. Um, you mentioned the whistleblower thing. Has what you have been dealing with, has it been recognized as actual whistleblower activity? No, I should have listened uh, to my mother <laughs> and other, uh, the one legal that I had. I should have contacted somebody else about that part of it. It would be treated more as a whistleblower. It's hard to accept and understand, though, what that truly is. I mean, it really, really is hard to understand because what we see about whistleblowers are these huge, like, corporations or someone calling out, you know, something on this big official basis or this group of employees. Like, we see it in the media, and so we don't really realize what it is on a lower level, like on a personal level in our jobs. We don't understand what that really means. You know, it doesn't have to be some big official, like, hey, everybody, I'm going to blow the whistle now. Like it's just reporting wrongdoing. A lot of people really don't understand that. It's gradual. It's been gradual. But after the fact, it, that's what it was. I am putting you in connection with some really great employment attorneys who used to work someplace where they worked for the corporations and the agencies that took people down unfairly. And they started to recognize that they were not on the right side of things, that they were helping these corporations take employees down just to protect the corporation and not doing right by the employee. So long story short, that's, there's a very long story to it, but a very noble one that I have a lot of respect for. They see people having to pay out of pocket to even be able to stick up for themselves in these situations because I don't know, Jesse, do you have 150,000 extra dollars in cash laying around? No, I don't. You got to survive after this. So they, they see that too. And they want to be able to help people for free. And then if the case works, they'll work on a contingency level, but they are doing it for the right reasons and they're very knowledgeable. And I'm going to put you in connection with them. And if there's any way that they can help you get through this, they will, you'll still be able to survive in the process. So, and the attorney that I had throughout the whole, my whole process, and I'm still using because it's still, we've still got stuff going on. I had to put a lot of money up front because I just, I couldn't find anybody that would help me on contingency. And they were very highly recommended and that firm has done an amazing job, but it has cost a lot of money. And when these other attorneys found out about that, like how much money people like me were having to put forth ahead of time, especially federal employees, they were, they were dumbfounded. But in EEO cases, there's not a lot of cash to be had if you win. Like attorneys don't make out big on these cases. And that's really the main reason why it's hard to find a firm that will take on cases on contingency because Jesse, if you're found to be right, if, you're, if your case goes your way, there still isn't a big windfall of money. It's never about the money. An attorney has to be doing it for other reasons. It's good to hear you say that, surviving after. For somebody in my position who's pretty much steered their entire life towards jumping, no marriage, no kids, no holdings. I'm just, I'm here for big earnings. So the idea of after, that's good to hear, good to have in your head when you go into this. Because right now, I'm honest with you, this is everything. I will not stop because jumpers don't, firefighters don't. This is in no way, shape, or form my bad decision making. This is somebody else's. I've put everything into it this far. I'm going to put keep putting everything into it. And it may not go as we would like when we start this process. There's always that. But do you know how powerful just this conversation that we're having right now is? And do you know how much value some other people are going to find in it who are struggling are going to find in this? 
So it may be, it's going to be effects that you'll never even be aware of. It's going to affect people that you will never know about. That's why I decided to resign. I had so much more ability to help the system, other people, the agency from the outside. I could never be doing this. I could never be talking with you about this and planning to produce a podcast with it. We were having all these conversations in hiding because people are terrified because they'll be removed. Once you're a target, it can be anything. Moral courage has increased even more. And now it's, it's an internal and te- power integrity. Like it feels good to be doing the right thing, even though it's not going to help financially. It is not helping me socially. It's not helping me. I'm broke man. I'm broke. And I live at the home at the family ranch because I put everything I had into fighting for the right. A lot of people won't do that. And I don't expect everybody to, but what you're doing. Technically I'm homeless. Yeah. Hard to find another job. And actually I'm pretty terrified because I want to jump again, but and it's valuable. Put it out there for everybody because it is valuable. You will never know about the life that you saved because you did the right thing. You will not know that. It's just like when I realized that fire prevention wasn't, I'll never know the million acres or the fatality that was avoided because I prevented a fire because you can't quantify that. Don't be a chicken and see that he's involved in an EEO case and try to stay away from him as far as you can because all you see is liability. You know, I had a judge tell me that the administrative judge said, you know, Abby, it would benefit them so much if they would grab a hold of everything that you know and everything you're willing to help them with, but they can't see past you being a liability. And that's a judge telling you that and admitting that the agency is that shallow because they have attorneys that don't care about you, Jesse. They don't care about smoke jumpers. They don't care about fire lane fatalities. They just care about the bottom line and keeping the agency there. You're just like, you're just budget dust. You're just, you're just another line item. And the Forest Service needs to pull its head out. I'm looking forward to frank discussions with their agency representatives. The EEOC knows that something's going on and they know that something needs to change. That was very clear to me. I have taken at least some sort of comfort in that. I wouldn't have made it to at least waiting during this ambiguous time period for a judge to be assigned. They wouldn't have made it this far if somewhere along the way somebody didn't determine that there was merit. Well, they, they um, couldn't find a way to throw your case out, basically, is, is why you are where you are. Because if they can find any reason or they can make a preliminary decision ahead of time, they will absolutely do it because the last place they want it to go is in front of an administrative judge. And the judge even told me, he said, we have so much pressure to get rid of any case that we possibly can before it ever gets this far. We are encouraged to throw them out. But the ones like yours and mine that are completely undeniable... They end up in front of a judge and there's a lot of power in that. So the fact that you are being assigned a judge, that says a lot. And that means that your case is pretty serious. If they were going to play jock locker room politics, which I always disengage from, if they would really want to play politics, I did the same in a way. I asked Senator Tester, Democrat from Montana, and Senator Moran, Republican out of Kansas. I talked with both of them uh, and their, their parties offices and I generated support from them uh, on the case. So maybe maybe that's how I'm making it in front of an administrative judge. Yeah, Congressman McCarthy helped me get mine. Well, it was dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. And I was assigned to a judge that had far too much of a caseload. And my congressman got involved. I just happened to be introduced to him in a roundabout way. And next thing you know, he came and threw out the first pitch of my kids' little league game and talked to him and his wife. And next thing you know, I'm assigned to a fresh new judge who had a clean calendar. It was enough to help me 
get things moving forward because it had already gone on for years. From the time that you call BS on something and you officially speak up, and then you're just supposed to go back to the office, back to the jump base, back to the sewing room, like nothing's happening. It just festers and it gets so much worse. People just don't understand. It's not as simple as filing a piece of paper and then everything's going to be easy peasy back at the loft. Your life becomes complete hell. And I have a lot of empathy for for those folks who have actually filed one already and they are still working in their location. I'm uh, fortunate enough, I guess, that I only sat in that environment for a week or two while the investigation harassment claims were being investigated. That takes, I think, a little bit more that pulls harder on the particular employee that actually did that to then go every day. I've been fortunate enough that I can go do whatever I want while I'm dealing with this. Yeah, there is a lot of value in that. I know that you're having a difficult time finding a place to live right now, but it is very hard to be in that position. And they just look for your next missed flight or that you parked crooked Mm -hmm. or they'll look for anything. So that whole time that you're there, you're just in an extreme risk for them to find the next little step to get you on. So you're, you're in a good place not being there right now, though I know it's very hard because the entire wildland world is in Alaska fighting fire as we speak. And it's gut-wrenching to be pulled away from that, whether it's by choice, by injury, by legal reason, by being fired. It's, it's really hard. And so, Jesse, I know that you're having a tough time. And, but what you're doing right now, man, this is your legacy. Whether or not you see it right now, it is. So people are going to say, like, don't be like Sankey. But Sankey just threw it all out there on an interview and it's going to make some waves. And I think that's really important. You know, I week after the two days after I sent in my resignation letter to as many people as I could possibly get it out to uh, a senator that I've never even talked to, reached out to or anything like that. She called out and quoted my letter in the budget hearings in Washington. Like It made a difference. You know, it, it got a senator to ask our chief, what the hell? are you doing? So that right there is a win because that just a senator calling out my letter, my resignation letter like that, that's, that's very powerful and not anything that I ever saw coming. During the appropriations committee, that was perfectly timed. I had no intention and I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I didn't see that coming at all. I was very um, proud and inspired by that actually. Thank you. I watched that. Yeah, it couldn't have happened better. I really, that day that I heard about that was very surreal. It's those little, those little wins that you never even we're striving for or saw coming that they will happen. And nobody, I need everybody to hear that hears this though, is to realize that nobody that goes to the EEOC or that fights or files a complaint, nobody does it for money because there is no amount of money they're allowed to give you that makes it worth it. People think that they make an assumption, not necessarily in our cases, but just in any EEO case. Maybe if you're in a private corporation, private employment where they see those windfalls, that's not us. The most that the EEOC could ever grant us ever And I'm talking about if somebody beat you nearly to death on a fire and threw gas on you and lit you, the most that judge can ever give you is $300,000. And that, my friends, does not, even if you ever got the very maximum, it never comes close to making up for the hell that you go through once you speak up in this this capacity. that's true. And I'm a temp, so I wasn't even a permanent employee. So it's not like I'm fighting to retain my retirement or anything. Right. We're trying to time out as far as the Forest Service is concerned. My 16 years of fire only amounts to eight years, really. But now, since I've been out longer than two years, I no longer qualify for the Workforce Flexibility Act. So I get nothing out of this. And how old are you this year? 40. This piece in our lives where we're too young for this, but too old for that. And uh, But then we've just gotten brave enough to really do what it takes to do the right thing. You know, and now we have enough life experience. It's like in those 
those years where this started happening to you, you know, you knew enough to be dangerous because you knew enough to call it out. And that's when, that's when it can become really difficult. And thank you for talking to me and explaining so much of this to me. And it's going to be, people need to hear about this. So you're, you're right now, you're still in the waiting game. Is that right? You're just waiting for a judge to be assigned or you're waiting for a hearing date? Uh, I'm waiting for a judge to be assigned. I didn't realize that once a judge is assigned, you've got 90 days, there's a set timeline. Everything leading up to moving into having the judge being assigned has a timeline. In between having the representative for the agency being assigned to then having the judge being assigned, that's ambiguous. That time period is ambiguous, I guess. Yeah. You know, since I started doing this, I thought I would be back to jumping this year, last year. I didn't realize the time frame. I didn't understand how the process is designed to wear the claim. Wear you down and help you go claim away. It. Yeah, just the little things. Having the having you constantly called a complainant versus a claimant. Right. Just little things like that. Everything is designed in the EEO process, even when you have your case, to just wear the person out, right. down and out. And that in itself has very negative consequences for the individual, for the individual's family. For those in the future who need to speak up. Right. Yeah. All I have to do is point. Don't be like Sankey. Well, you know what? One of these <laughs> days people are going to say, be like Sankey and don't be afraid to speak up because, you know, I, I hear from, you're going to hear from people know. after this and I hear from okay. people all the time that say, thank you. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you for having the courage, you know, because once people hear that you're sharing your story on a bigger level and they realize that, you know, they're not alone. And a lot of people hear my situation and think, oh, well, it's a, it's just another female being harassed. And I'm so glad to talk to you because it's not just about the chicks. It's across the board. I hear from guys constantly. I mean, just I, like hearing from you, yeah. you know, it is, it's across the board. So that is something that I've also seen a lot of people disengaging because they think it, this is more of a hashtag me too right. um, issue, even if it was, I mean, it's still the same principle. Well, we're switching it to a hashtag not me because we are not going to tolerate it anymore. So we're not going to be the me too's because it's not going to be me. It's not going to be us because we're calling bullshit on all this and we're doing something about it. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are dealing with the same stuff that we are, but we are all pushed into dark corners and they hope that we don't talk to each other, which is exactly why I started a Facebook group. It's why years ago I started a wildfire women's group just to get gals in fire to talk a little more because they're never around each other. You know, this, the social media part of things is it's killing agencies right now. I'll tell you what people are talking that are in different States in different countries, Alaska to Montana to, you know, it kills them for, to be able to bully people just like they were doing to you trying to get you off that fire. And it kills them with us sharing hard truths with each other that normally wouldn't be shared. So they either need to get ahead of this and capture it and make it into something better, or they're just going to keep getting crushed by leaders who are willing to stand up and speak out. And there's a lot that, of people that don't have, they just don't have it in their DNA to be able to do this. And I totally get that. And I don't fault anyone who doesn't have this inside of them because it doesn't come naturally. I was just raised and I have, there's something in my blood that makes me and us this way. And we owe it to the others, to other people that are out there who can't do it. We owe it to do something bigger. You hit on a very good point. They have to get in front of it. There's no longevity in the current status, the state of being right now. Whomever actually gets in, changes it, that is going to be the next leadership into the future. It's in the face of management now. Something has to change fundamentally. And it's going to be a hard choice to make happen. 
but anybody that can do it, that will do it and move forward, that will be the next phase. That'll be the new leadership, the new direction. It's coming. It has to. Otherwise, the agency should shift out. Right. It was created. Idealistic principles, stagnant at the moment. It's forced to deal with a lot of complicated issues all at once. And it can be. And that's what it's done in the past. But it has to adapt, evolve. And anybody that steps forward right now and takes the lead on that, that is the new direction. We just got to get people to step forward and take the lead that have enough space in their career. They're not going to retire before they can really see it through. I see that happen a lot too. And people are going to look back at this era and be like, before that and after that. And right now we're living in the holy crap, that was really rough piece of it. We're where that really big thick line is drawn down the timeline and they're like, and then there was this time. <laughs> that was a really rough time where we were trying to get through all that. I look forward to the future when we can look back and say it and laugh about it. I just hope that we survive. We're 40 now. Gosh, I don't know. Hopefully it happens (laughs) in our lifetime. And that's what I am. That's what I'm on a mission to get to happen. That's what we are doing by doing this is we want to see this happen by the time our kids are here. That's what I'm hoping. I have a nine-year-old. So hopefully by the time that he's in the professional community, you know, I cringe when he says he wants to be a firefighter, but hopefully I can improve it. And it's a better place when he gets here. Let's hope that things are going to have to change and we are going to make it happen. And, you know, to all my to all my smoke jumper friends out there, I love you, but some things are screwed up. You know it. And if you're not accepting that and admitting it, then I'm sorry. But I would have this real conversation with them, with any of these people that are out there in the bar. I am going to have it. I would have it there and I'm having it now. And I have a lot of respect for everybody And I know that everybody has different influences in their life that make them the way they are or cause them to to behave the way that they do. And I just want everyone to really take a step back from yourself, from what you're doing and ask yourself if you're doing it right. Are you being a good bystander? Are you speaking up when you should? Are you standing up for yourself when you should? You know, everybody just needs to reflect. And is there a Jesse Sankey running around your jump base that annoys the crap out of you and you would just want to do anything to get rid of him? Because God, that guy just... He's always got something to say. He's just so smart. He's, you know, are you intimidated by people like him? What is the deal? Step back and ask yourself, why? Why do you see it that way? And what can you do to either embrace it or make it better? It's a good thing that we, that we got together and chatted. I really appreciate everything you have to say and how you say it. Of course, they wanted you to go lobby in Washington because you're articulate. You know what you're talking about. And it's not one or two sentences, man. You've got books worth of common sense, (laughs) common, just basic common sense that needs to be applied to our principles. So don't stop doing what you're doing. Find a place to live, find a way to survive and get through this because it will rip your life apart just like it is right now. Standing up with this EEO stuff is not easy, but we need to find a way to make it easier so that more people are either brave enough and willing to stand up or other people knock it off to where you don't have to stand up. So let's keep doing what we're doing. We're not going to stop. Deal? Deal. Okay, because we're bringing some hard truths. So thank you, Jesse. I greatly appreciate it. And I needed a conversation. Right on. It's it's been going on so long that people don't, uh, the few that hear it don't even carry it on so long. Right. And it gets exhausting because you keep having these conversations or you keep trying to explain it to people and it, it breaks you down because I know how much energy and just emotion that it takes to talk about it over and over again. It really rips you apart. It's not just with you, but with others. But I keep having this, these conversations with people who have either gone through it and are just, it's hurt them so much or they're in the middle of it. And we have these conversations and I'm like, damn, if thousands of people could hear this right now. Like I want to reproduce what we just said because people need to hear it. So us having this conversation 
and being able to capture it and hold on to it. It's, I think it's really important. So thank you for being brave enough to do it. It is truly an honor to serve you. Those of you who've left a review or sent an email to abby at upinflames.org, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you. For behind the scene info, backstories, and content no one else is getting, check out patreon.com slash podcast. Of course, you can check out abbybolt.com for all that and much more, including several valuable resources you won't find anywhere else. Keep checking in because it will be growing and improving every day, along with my other podcast, Her Brotherhood, where we celebrate triumph over tragedy and women who put their lives on the line. Now, I bet you know someone who would also appreciate this podcast, so go ahead, hit that share button, and let's do a good thing together. I hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, choose the hard right over easy silence.